This podcast was recorded on April 27, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Welcome to the Sherman Show. Today I have with me my uh, co-host Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And we also have here with us Robert Cohen. Hello uh, there. The, do- the director of Global Develop Credit here at DoubleLine, as well as a portfolio manager of multiple R strategies. So welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so um, you know, uh, we, need to, we need to introduce you to the world here. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your background, Robert. Uh, what got you into the investment business in the first place? Well, it really starts a long time ago. My family was in uh, an industrial supply business, which I wasn't very fascinated with, but I was always interested in how businesses are formed, how you can take something from nothing and grow it into something. And so that probably started initially my interest in how companies work, how the business world works. And from that, I developed an interest in what cor- corporate credit markets and investing. I originally worked as a banker. So that got me into the broadly investment world. Uh, so when you say banker, what kind of banker were you? I, I uh, worked for a bank arranging uh, financing for energy companies and okay. utilities. That's a different kind of banker than I was. I was a bank teller in, in college. Yeah. Right? So. yeah, so I have actually the same background as Mr. Ah. Lau here. Um, I, I was a bank teller as well. I, I got the, uh, the pleasure of uh, exchanging money and uh, cashing people's checks. Oh, seemed, nice. Seemed like that was the, the, yeah. the heavy business. Well, my that's family a- thought that's what I was doing, yeah. but uh, <laughs> they, they still do. They still yeah. do yeah. think I actually work as a teller. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so I worked as a banker, and what you do there is you have to sell whatever you find. So you go out, you find a client, and whatever client you find, uh, when you pitch that to investors, that's a great idea. doesn't matter if it is or not. And I remember sitting and writing pitch books for, you know, key investment considerations. Why is this a great business? I remember sitting there thinking, this is ridiculous. This is not a good, this is not a good business. We shouldn't be pitching it. But you got the client and you have to pretty it up and shove it out the door. Where on the, on the investment side, on the buy side, uh, you don't have to do that. You can actually say, this is a lousy investment opportunity. I can pass on it. This doesn't make any sense. You can be honest with your Ideally, with your uh, you know with your conviction when you see an opportunity. Yeah, so, do you have a lot of friends on Wall Street? Since you're really out here bashing bankers and what they do, uh, do you, do you have I, any I, friends out I there? I do. I do too? have friends. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm not sure they'll admit that are my friends. Okay. But, uh, okay. but no, you, I you perceive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I do have yeah. people who work on both ends of yeah. ends of the street. Okay. So okay, yeah. Well, so I, I'm just uh, you, you got it. So you were born, you went to high school, and you just yeah. went and magically became a banker. How'd you yeah, get yeah. It just that's what just happened. Right. Um, right. No, I said like I said, I had I had interest in in companies generally, and thought about doing something in that. I had a I, I got an undergrad uh, degree in business, but that doesn't really tell you much, uh, or doesn't really inform much. But then, Where'd you go to school? Then uh, I went to Arizona undergrad, and then University uh, of University of okay. 
Yeah, that's right. Wildcats. Pac-12. Go, Pac-12. Go, go Wildcats. Yeah. All right. Uh, then I, uh, I decided to apply for business school. I took the GMAT in Chicago, which is where I grew up. And uh, the temperature in Chicago the day of the GMAT was negative 20. That's the actual air temperature, not the wind chill. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so I decided to kind of spray my applications everywhere and got uh, a half-tuition fellowship to USC. I'm like, half price is good. Yeah. I like that. So that got me out here and uh, got, got the job at the Bank of Montreal after yeah. graduating USC. And that. Yeah. So you got, got the ball rolling. So you've been a value investor most of your life. Value right. on, the, on the educational <laughs> value on the education. That's <laughs> so, right. Yeah. And then when I looked to make another move, I was trying to marry this interest in investing with like something that would be opportunistics uh, from from a career perspective. So I joined uh, what was called ING. Now it's called Voya in 2001 uh, because there was an investment team and part of the team left. Interesting. Story. Story there. Uh, and so from that, there was an opportunity to join that team and, and, and build uh, you know, something from, from scratch or build something new that wasn't there before. And it gave me the opportunity to um, have a role that I really wouldn't have had in, you know, if it was in status quo. Yeah. Because thinking about going to firms in the investment field, you, know, you can join a large built-out firm as you know, the 10,000th employee, right, if you're going to go join Fidelity or some major firm. Um, but you're, you're, you're not going to be very impactful. You have a very narrow role. So going to, to that firm, ING, when it had some openings, I had the ability to, um, to have a, a role that I wouldn't normally have if I was just coming in under a more normal circumstance. So I stayed there for 11 years. Uh, and then DoubleLine started. So uh, I remember when... Uh, I didn't know much about Jeffrey Gunlock and the group at, at, at the prior firm, but I remember when he came here, the thing that stuck in my mind is I remember sitting in ING with the Wall Street Journal, and it said something about Jeffrey Gunlock leaves, leaves TCW. And then the next day, it said something like Jeffrey Gunlock, or what I can't remember the time, it was within a week, it said Jeffrey Gunlock uh, agrees to start a new firm, you know, backed by Oak Tree Capital. A few days later, you know, Jeffrey Gunlock has an office, you know, in downtown L.A. It was like basically a week from the time I saw the first article. And then the, the next article in the Wall Street Journal a week later was, you know, Dubline Capital's up and running. And I didn't know much about what was going on. But at that time, I'm like, I want to work for that guy. Because I remember <laughs> dealing with all the bureaucracy and ING of anything, just getting a fund off the ground. You've got 30 people willing to, that, that you need for a signature. You had to explain everything 10 times. Everything slowed down through the bureaucracy. And here's a guy who started from scratch to a whole company, you know, up and running in a week. And I'm like, that's a guy I want to work for. And it took me another, what, uh, how many years? Two years. Yeah. Uh, 2012 I joined. Yeah. So it took another just about two years to actually make it happen. So how did you do it? Were you just like emailing Jeffrey Gunlock your resume every single day? No, uh, but there's a story I, there. Yeah. Well, uh, I wasn't exactly like stories. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so I wasn't exactly sure how to make it happen, but um, I remember uh, talking to people at Oak Tree and I'm like, well, I'm not sure what they do over there because I didn't really. And, and, and uh, one person, a friend of mine said, well, whatever, you just find a way in there. So, but I, wasn't, I didn't want to just get any job. So uh, just over the course of time, uh, a position opened up in, in GDC. And, uh, it, it was and what's a, GDC? A global Developed Credit. So it made sense that uh, a position in corporate credit is something that I, I can add value with. So that, that, that created the opening. I figured, all right, now here's actually a position that fits f- for me, and here's an opening. 
Um, if that didn't come about, I probably would have tried to triangulate something else, but it opened and then it made for an easy, easy opportunity. So I remember my interview with Jeffrey Gunlock. It was preceded by my interview with Jeffrey Sherman that lasted five minutes when, I don't know if you remember, you came in and said, you've got five minutes. Tell me why we should hire you and Jeffrey Gunlock's coming in next. So I spit out as much as much as I could say in five minutes. And then Jeffrey came in. And as uh, so, wait, wait, let's stop there for a second, Sherman. What's your memory of that uh, five-minute conversation? Or maybe not even conversation. It seems like it was just like a vomit of yes, yeah, spewing yeah, yeah. out. I, I said, okay, your background is in loans. Um, what's a bank loan? Why should we buy them? And why are you good at good at analyzing them? And I think he did use, as you can see from listening to him talk, he likes to ramble on. Right. So I think he used four minutes and fifty-eight seconds of which the door opened. And I said. Okay, it's his turn. That's right. Yeah, if you need me again, if he, if he makes it to this gauntlet, then I'll come back and talk to him again. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how it happened. So in the interview with Jeffrey, I remember uh, I was thinking, well, there wor- weren't any bank loans and really no high-yield effort at the time. It was ma- mainly an investment-grade effort, and I was asking Jeffrey, so how do I fit in here? How does this all work? And he gave me the, the, the shoot salesman story, which many people have heard before. He I'll just share with our he, audience. Yeah, he just <clears throat> looks at me and he says... Two shoe salesmen sail to Africa. The first one gets off the boat and says, and looks around and sees no one's wearing any shoes. So he wires home, no one's wearing any shoes, I'm on the next boat home. Second guy looks around, notices no one's wearing, wearing any shoes and says, or, or wires home, no one's wearing, wearing any shoes, don't know when I'll be back next. Any, any other questions? <laughs> so I said, nope, that about, I get it, that about works. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, I think I've always tried to explain to people that the thing about uh, the way we approach the investment business is that we don't ever think about just one idea. Mm-hmm. We look at all opportunities, right? And so if there's an interesting opportunity and we think there's a business behind it, we should be a player in it. And to be a player, there's a couple things you need. you got to have resources, you got people to know what they're doing, mm-hmm. and you got to figure out why we can be the best at it. So um, using that philosophy... Tell me about you know how you think about the loan market. You know that's where you kind of grew up in at right. the, at the I, uh, when you were with ING. Uh, tell me uh, or kind of explain to some of our listeners out there what a, what a loan really is. Like we talk about fixed income markets, people uh, have a lot of familiarity with corporate bonds. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can explain some of the differences and nuances. Again, don't get into too much minutiae here, but but <clears throat> what what makes loans different from bonds? Yeah, well. Uh... They're very similar in in most basic terms. You're lending money to a company. Okay. What distinguishes it from an investment grade bond is these are typically uh, below investment grade, so lower credit quality. So like what we call high yield bonds. What we call high yield, right? So anything below triple B. What distinguishes a loan from a bond is uh, that loans are first of all senior, so first and right right of repayment. And they're floating rate, so they don't have the duration that, that a high-yield bond would have. Like interest rate risk. Interest rate risk, much, yes, right? interest rate risk. Uh, uh, one way I like to simplify it for people is think about if you buy a home. Uh, you typically put a loan on it. That loan is secured by the house. That's basically the same thing as, as a bank loan, except the difference is instead of a home, it's a company. Some people on top of their loan will have a home equity line, which is second in right, right of repayment to the first loan you put on. That's a high yield bond. So that's kind of if you think in, in homeowner terms, you have a first a first mortgage and then you have a home equity line. In the corporate world, you have a first lien term loan, which is first and secured by the assets, and then you have a high yield bond uh, behind it, which is 
second in line to, to get repaid. Yeah. So that's that's in simple terms how it works. Okay. So why, <clears throat> as an investor, should people want to um, look at having some loans in their fixed income portfolio? I know we use them extensively. We use them standalone, uh, um, the, you know, some of the strategies you run. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use them extensively throughout um, our asset <clears throat> allocation process. So uh, maybe you can talk about some of the merits as why would you rather have a loan than a bond? Like, what are the advantages of yeah, it? Yeah, I think that I look at it from from uh, two opportunity sets. The first one is that in a more conservative portfolio, it provides you income without the volatility that you'd find in the high-yield market. So high-yield, uh, when the economy slows down or there's any volatility, they tend to have more volatility than loans because they're riskier. So it's a little bit less risk. Um, and it's floating rates, so you don't have the interest rate risk. So in a portfolio where you're trying to contain the amount of volatility you're going to have in the portfolio, it's a good way to get pure credit risk without uh, taking too much, without having too much volatility. Can you explain uh, the floating rate comment? We keep using the phrase. We we like to define terms around here. We want to keep it simple for our audience. Yeah, so a a high-yield bond has a fixed coupon. So if it's a 6% bond, that means that the borrower is paying 6% every year in, in a coupon payment, and that does not change for the life of the bond until it's refinanced. Uh, a loan has a uh, spread over LIBOR, so the borrower, instead of 6%, might pay LIBOR plus 500, which would be roughly 6% where LIBOR is now. Mm-hmm. But as LIBOR moves, then their interest rate or their payment goes up. So if LIBOR goes from 1% to 2%, what was a 6% loan is now a 7% loan because LIBOR is moving up and it can move down. So the uh, the payment floats. The payment moves from time to time. Did you catch that, Lau? Yeah, yeah, it's good. But did you notice what he said, though, too, when he talked about paying the bond off? He didn't say pay the bond off. He said when the bond gets refinanced. Yeah, no, 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 like one actually, yeah, guy, no one yeah. actually pays this stuff <laughs> off. <laughs> That's a <laughs> secret here. Yeah, we just <laughs> refi. The banker, so. yeah. We actually don't pay it off. So loans can give you pure credit exposure. So in, in particularly in a double-line portfolio that has a uh, uh, diverse, diversified asset, a mix of assets uh, across fixed income, uh, many of those assets have a significant amount of interest rate risk. If you put a loan uh, in, in a portfolio, you're getting pure credit risk because it, does, it has that floating na- rate nature of the coupon. So it's a way to balance out interest rate risk in a portfolio. That, that's the first uh, 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 proposition. The second one is over time, for more of a risk-seeking investor, uh, loans are still less efficient than other markets. It's really hard to find... Wait, you're from Chicago. How, how are you going to talk about <laughs> inefficient markets? blasphemy. That's <laughs> yeah. right. That's right. If I see a $20 bill on, on, on the floor, I pick it up. Right. You're not I don't presume that, that it's arbed away and it's not really there. So, um, you know, you take uh, large cap equities. It's really hard to be any smarter th- than anyone else at picking Microsoft or IBM or Apple. You know, the market's pretty much figured that out. But uh, uh, loans are still uh, a newer asset class. There's only so many people who follow them. Uh, big managers typically look at the very large issuers, and there are smaller issuers that just don't get the attention of firms over the course of time. Um, when the markets have some volatility, those names really seem to fall apart, and that's where you really can make some some really good money. So for uh, more risking risk-seeking investors who are in the right type of vehicle, typically a closed-end type of structure. Uh, there are opportunities that are hard to find across all fixed income. You can't do that all the time. Right now, there's not a whole lot. It's kind of slim pickings. But over the course of time, through a credit cycle, you can find these opportunities. It might be a loan that only has 
20, maybe even 15 lenders, uh, a new person doesn't want to get involved. They've got a lot of names in their portfolio. Uh, maybe it's smaller. So if you're a gargantuan manager, it just doesn't move the needle. But uh, for someone who can find a way to put it to work, there's real value there. And you can actually outperform and find something that the rest of the market isn't looking at. And I think that's a, a key, a key uh, uh, opportunity in the loan market over the course of time. So outside of loans, I know you mentioned global developed credit a little bit earlier there. Can you talk about what your team does, you know, how you look, you view the world uh, mm-hmm. with, within the, the, the sectors that you, you look at and just kind of talk about how you've progressed over, you know, since your time here at Double Line? Yeah, so I feel like right now we have an at-scale credit team that has, it's taken a good five years to build. Um, we approach it quite simply by uh, looking uh, from the bottom up at every name in the portfolio. There is at DoubleLine an excellent built-out macro process that can figure out where the economy is going and, and, and sectors or issues in the macro uh, from the macro perspective that we need to think about. So we spend most of our time looking at credits from the bottom up. No, you're talking about credits. Are you talking specifically at the loan space? Are you talking about all all three: investment grade, high yield, and bank loans? So, opportunity comes in in any one of those spaces. We look from the bottom up and say, "Would you lend money to this company in the form of a of an investment grade bond, a high yield bond, or a bank loan?" If the answer is yes, I think the prospects for this company are strong. I think it's stable. I think it can support the leverage you're putting on it. Then it comes down to where does it fit. Uh, does it have the right yield and the right risk profile for various portfolio? And if the answer is yes, we'll put it in. The answer often is this fits in a lot of places. So the approach is to think from the bottom up, what are we seeing out there that's attractive? Typically through that work, we'll start to identify certain sectors that we favor or disfavor. So for right now, for example, we, we like uh, technology companies. So you'll find in all three portfolios, or all three strategies, I should say, investment grade, high yield, and loans, we, we have uh, uh, large exposures, roughly around 10% or so, in technology. And there's uh, sectors that we don't like so much, like uh, uh, energy or commodities. Uh, it's already gone through a, a cycle, so uh, we find that those are, over time, more volatile. So they typically don't deserve being a full position uh, permanently in a portfolio. Those are opportunistic trades. When energy collapses, there's an opportunity maybe for the right portfolio to buy it and let it run up. But it's not something we want to keep portfolios exposed to over time. So we look at each credit and decide, does this thing make sense? And based on that, we, we, we generate these themes about we like one sector, we don't like another. Retail, for example, we're very cautious on that. So we're not just going to say the index has a 5% weighting to retail, so let's have a 5% weighting. We, we don't do that. We look from the bottom up. Are the retail names worth buying? And if that adds up to 1%, 2%, 3% or 0 then that's, that's how we do it. And then we marry that with all the double line macro work that's done by many groups here. All right, great. Well, um, so you talked about the cycle. And um, so where do you see us kind of in this credit cycle today? Um, you know, we've had the, the idea of uh, you have a new administration in town. Um, there was a lot of hopes on the phrase like reflation, uh, people talking about new opportunities out there, that there's, you know, uh, a lot of optimism in the marketplace. Um, how do you think about where we sit in the credit cycle today? And we don't have to use the sports metaphors like people typically right. use. But essentially, how are you thinking about the cycle and how are you thinking about managing through it? And, you know, kind of what do you see as kind of the risk to this kind of credit 
um, cycle coming to an end. Yeah, well, we are late in the credit cycle, so we can use a baseball analogy. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think we're in the ninth inning. We're in the 12th, 13th, 14th inning. And so late in the credit... I've said that many times. Oh, you have? Well, there you go. I've a team that a lot of times can't score, so extra innings is is not always... It's it's pretty much assumed a lot of times. Excellent. So So we're we're late in the credit cycle, and spreads are tight. And when you do that, uh, what that means is the market is not really properly differentiating between a very safe credit and a very risky credit. Spreads all sort of compress and all look the same. So what do you do in that market? You clearly have to be cautious. Uh, I think uh, on the surface, one thing you do is you just have diversification. It's hard to have conviction when everything's jammed on top of each other. So uh, uh, you run a more diversified portfolio. Um, I think it's the wrong time to try to really try to stretch for yield. I think you try to kind of keep pace. But don't don't try to uh, uh, you know go crazy and put you know let's say more than index yield into the portfolio because you're put, you're exposing yourself for risk, um, uh, and uh, I think you just have to be mindful that at some point the economy is going to run out of gas, and the best opportunities, like I was saying, are when you're positioned to take advantage of volatility. So we're thinking right now that we want to be. Um, you know, cautious. We want to be diverse, but we also want to keep our keep capacity for if there's any volatility. Uh, Trump has a misstep. The market gets spooked. It sells off. We want to be in a position where we can jump on that and buy things and 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 make make our money that way opportunistically when 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 situations present themselves. Uh, there's been little volatility, uh, like you were saying. Uh, so it's been hard to find these find these pockets of opportunity. But at some point, presumably over the course of the year or so, there will be a sell-off, and then that's an opportunity to pick stuff up and and uh, and, and 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 generate a little bit of performance. So you talked about the credit cycle, and you talked about it coming perhaps closer to an end. Um, so when that happens, you typically see defaults, mm-hmm. right? And defaults are bad for credit investors, right? That means someone can't pay, right? Um, how do you think about default risk in in a portfolio and how do you how do you try to offset and get priced for that? Well, I'd first distinguish the difference between defaults and losses, which I think uh, investors uh, don't completely understand. I, th- uh, I frequently hear from investors questions about what defaults have you had, uh, what do you do with defaults, and that's natural. But I'll give you two scenarios. So we talked about how there's loans that are senior in the capital structure, and then there might be bonds beneath it. There are often times where a company borrows way too much money, but the loan only represents a small portion of the total capital structure. In in uh, in high yield land, we refer to it as loan to value, right? So if you have a company that has where the loan is twenty percent of the total value of the business, the company can still drop in half, and now it's forty percent of the business, but there's still lots of coverage. So that company might default because they borrow too much money and there's just too much debt they can't support it. But the loan's money good. It's so they default co- on the bond, they, but they, they don't fall on the loan. Yeah. Now, technically, the loan defaulted because the loan has a cross-default provision. So if any bond in the capital structure were to default, or any debt period, mm-hmm. could be a, 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 a credit line, it could be anything. If there's any default at that company, it will trigger default at the term loan. Um, so that loan is technically in default, but it's covered by lots of – it has lots of cushion. And you know you could say that in that environment, it's still – very likely that you will get repaid at par at some point. Uh, in a bankruptcy, you'd likely still get your interest payment. So you're not impaired, but the market's going to trade that name at a discount. So if you buy a name at par, 
say a five percent yield or so, and then there's a default, and it winds up to eight or nine percent because people don't want to own things with a D on it. Right. Uh, you're paying, you're taking a hit just because the market wants a discount to own a defaulted name. Uh, when if you hold that through, it's going to eventually get repaid at par. Uh, and by the way, if you don't want to default in, the, in your portfolio, we can literally we can sell everything the day before it defaults, incur that seven to ten point loss, and just say we never had any defaults. So what I like to tell people is the right question isn't are there any defaults in the portfolio. The question is are there any losses? How many things did you buy at par and sell at seventy the day before it defaulted? I can tell you've had you know what we could say oh there's been no defaults at double line we. Every credit works out, but then it could turn out that we were buy- selling everything at 70. That's the wrong thing to do. So I like to change the narrative to defaults aren't necessarily bad. We actually bought a defaulted security at DoubleLine recently um, that uh, uh, had this situation where the loan was well covered. The loan didn't, uh, the market didn't, it didn't trade at par. The market wants a premium because it's in default. So we actually bought a loan that was in default. Uh, it wasn't actually even paying its coupon, but we bought it at a discount. It got taken out a month later, and we made money on it. So it's not a dirty word. You can make money with defaults. That's that's how I like to think about it. All right. So um, it's it's uh, if I had to summarize it, it's not defaults that hurt you. It's losses, losses that exactly, hurt you, or impairment of capital. Impairment. That's right. Yeah. Which we're not we're not quite there yet either. As you mentioned, we're at the twelfth or thirteenth inning. I mean. How much longer? I mean, how many more do you think we have in us to go? I mean, we still, you know, we still have, a, you know, some some Fed policy left. We've got, you know, the the administration talking about stimulus, whether or not it'll happen, or it, it remains to be seen. But what do you think? I mean, what's I your? I think we have time. Uh, there's no uh, red lights on the horizon from a micro bottom up level. Uh, credit markets often get sort of insanely overvalued before they really turn into a recession or before you get a real default cycle. So we had a mini one with energy. There were too many energy names financed in 2013 and 14, and then it started to fall apart in 2015. Um, before that, there was too many real estate and auto and other sectors. Sure. So there's always a sector that start to bubble up right before, before something bad happens. So from the bottom up, we don't see that. Like right now, looking at the market, I don't see any particular sector that is getting overfinanced and set up for a, a you know for failure. What about uh, retail? You mentioned retail so, earlier. But, that's on a lot of people's lips, especially in the REIT space. The yeah, but oh, re- retail isn't sort of overfinanced. The market's aware of it. It's not. It's not a darling sector. Uh, people are very cautious about it. They already trade with a risk premium, so it's unlikely that that's going to create some sort of implosion because it's already on everyone's radar screen. It's when people get favorable about a sector, it runs up, spreads compressed to nothing, it gets over, it becomes a very meaningful part of the index, and then all of a sudden people wake up and realize, well, this isn't all going to work. Mm-hmm. So retail doesn't really fit that. People already know that they should be cautious about it. And then from a macro level, like you said, uh, uh, people are going to, I think for some time, see what happens with Trump. Uh, Maybe the markets got ahead of themselves, but it's still early to tell whether Trump's going to actually get any sort of uh, policies put through and whether those will actually be effective. So the market will give give him some period of time before throwing the towel and saying it's not going to work or before you see any benefit to it. So it means we have some time. It's you know, funny. In, in a matter of years, probably. It's, it's you know, years, not months. Right? It's funny you mention that because it's, it's the promise of a policy, yeah. but people gave him the benefit of the doubt day one. But then, right. but then the evaporation of this hope and everything, it just it dissipates very slowly. I thought it was interesting yeah. you, you point that out because 
you know, uh, it, it's it's an extension of kind of of uh, market euphoria, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's not symmetric, right? The euphoria happens very quickly, but we're very we're very slow to admit our our, our wrongs and and the things right. that are going negative against us, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, the whole thing is uh, fascinating. Even if you were to presume that Trump would do everything he says, which is a huge leap of faith, it takes time. He has to get it through Congress. He has to get those bills enacted into law. And then they actually have to have an effect on the economy. Right. That doesn't happen in weeks or months. It, take, it will right. take multiple years for that to happen. So even if you had a crystal ball and you could say, all this is going to happen, all of his, his entire agenda will be implemented mm-hmm. There's a there's a lag before it even hits the economy. Yeah, I like to th- I like to draw the parallel. Like in the e- I, I always say like with the equity market, you know, it's not contemporary. It's always forward looking. It's yeah. thinking about the future. It, it it reacts well to optimism or mm-hmm. speculation much quicker. But I always feel that the bond market is much more contemporaneous, mm-hmm. right? It's what's going on today. How's the macro feeding through? How's the economy feel? And if you want to know, you don't look at the stock market. You look at the bond market. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that um, people really should take away from it, too, because you see disconnect at times between equity valuation and, and credit valuation in the bond market. Right. And I think it's just the kind of intertemporal behavior of the different time sets that these investors have. That's true. And we've been seeing it. Uh, you mentioned retail. Uh, uh, retail seems to trade daily on what's happening in the news with Trump. So are we having a border adjustment tax or not? Right. Uh, are we going to have any regulatory relief? You see it immediately um, with how names trade mm-hmm. on, on an hourly basis. So the bond market, of course, the stock market as well, but the bond market is on it hour by hour. Yeah. Stepping away from the market a bit, let's... Um Let's talk about what your typical day is like. I know you, um, it seems like you cover a lot of sectors. You, know, you cover a few different uh, you know, sectors, both within the fixed income market, but also within uh, the, the industry as a whole, you know, the, the industry as well. So, I mean, how do you manage your day? What's That's a good question. <laughs> uh, every day can be different, but uh, start the day uh, meeting with the team to make sure that you know, we, we know what we're doing, that we have uh, kind of a view on how the day is going to progress. Usually starts with a meeting where we go over all the new issue and where's the market trading and what do the portfolios look like. And that will consume a good part of the morning where we look at does any particular fund or does any particular strategy need some sort of change? Does it need attention? Cash could have could be a cash change. There could be some account new account that came on, on board. And we spend the morning just making sure the accounts are doing what they're supposed to do. On top of that, we look at what's the new issue calendar look like. Uh, the corporate credit markets are very new issue driven. So we look at uh, the new issue and see what's interesting to look into the portfolio. And that sort of kicks off our credit process. So as we look at what's in all of, of the strategies, we narrow it down to a list of names that uh, we want to pursue. And that will start the team starting to do research on that name, which will ultimately wind up in the portfolio. Of course, uh, that's just the beginning of the credit process. There's an element of my job which is talking to clients and uh, and, and 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 managing the team as well. So that I try to do sort of either mid or later in the day, um, yeah, having client meetings, uh, working on a new product development. That's usually uh, what we do after we get sort of the, the team in motion in the morning with what's happening uh, with the portfolios. Uh, so that's in broad strokes. Uh, it can change uh, if there's any particular uh, focus area. So, for example, we're working on a new CLO, collateralized loan obligation, that's in te- time intensive to get that off the ground. 
And so that could consume a large part of my day as we're trying to get that off the ground. So it can change a lot from day to day, but that's a general kind of framework by which we think about how to how to run things. Yeah, it sounds much more structured than my day. Uh, you know, <laughs> mine has a lot of knocking on the door and interruptions. It feels like too, but um, just put a lock on the door and then. Yeah, I, I think it's a fire hazard around here. Ah. It's not. It's not up to a code. Um, so Today lives are a stick. Yeah, that's right. And not to mention, you know, the hiving off of the team, uh, they get a little nervous when I lock the door too. Um, so, uh, you know, you told us about your background. So what do we see in the future for Mr. Cullen? What, what do you see, you know, kind of you're leading a group here at Double Line, you're leading the charge, you're leading product development, leading, you know, the developed credit world. Uh, what, what, what are your future plans outside of here? Outside of Double Line, okay. or do you? They can be oh, here can too. We be, can they be inside outside of Double Line? Yeah, you, they can be there. Line. But uh, just remember that other folks here at Double Line probably do listen to this too. So if you're going after their job, they'll know. Oh, that's a good yeah. point. Darn, yeah. is, is this being recorded? <laughs> Should I tap on the microphone? <laughs> yeah, probably not. It may hurt people's ears. Uh, well, I think there's still we're in the beginning stages of a growth opportunity at Double Line, particularly in corporate credit. So I feel like we just start get got we're just getting started here. We have a at scale credit team. Like I mentioned, investment grade, high yield, and loans. Uh, not a lot of AUM. It's ballpark 5% of the firm's AUM. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity now to show off what we've built. Uh, uh, we have the process in place. Uh, we have now the team that we've built. Uh, and, and we have all the capabilities set to go. Mm-hmm. So that means there's tremendous growth opportunity uh, as we now are up to scale and people have been working together for a while and we have a real like history to talk about. It's no longer theoretical. I remember when I would give client meetings about you know, bank loans or high yields in particular, I would tell them what we would do. <laughs> now I can tell them what we actually have been doing. And so that makes a, a really great opportunity. So I think growing that part of the business for the foreseeable future will keep me more than busy. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that, that sounds like a good enough goal to, on, on, on itself. And don't worry, I'll remind you of all this as well, yeah, too, I'm, I'm you know, sure. as, we, as we have future meetings, too. Yeah, it seems like we could have some future opportunities, too, in those two sectors that you mentioned with the, the heavier mm-hmm. credit yeah. credit side as well. So Yeah, we look forward to getting you some more exposure to some of that stuff when those opportunities arise. Yeah, we're ready to go. Yeah. All right, so um, so with that, I think we're going to go to uh, what Sam calls his his favorite time of the day. It's time. It's time. Yeah. All right. right. So, Random word generator, right? <laughs> that's right. So for those of you who don't know, we're about to engage in the session of Sherman Says. This is a quick rattle off of uh, basically what I do is I have a list of words in front of me, and I'm going to point to either you, Robert, or you, Jeffrey Sherman, and you guys will each... <laughs> Give your first response to that word that I give you. So we'll start out with Sherman here. Inflation. Uh, Waning. Financial statements. Uh, um, It's got to be fast. Financial statements are not one word. Useless. One word. Maybe. Useless. All right. Wow. I'll take that out. That, that, wait, I want to I stop there. <laughs> now, for a credit person to say financial statements are useless... I think now we believe in a little bit of market efficiency there because the market knows more than that antiquated statement that's been put out, right? Uh, maybe. It's, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know you're a bottom-up guy, so mm-hmm. you've got to respect the statement somewhat. Mm. You're skeptical. I'm a skeptic. Okay. Seems I'm like they've gotten overcomplicated as well. <laughs> that's because right. A lot of different right. versions. I think Munger said it's like if you, you know, before when he used to read financial statements, it would, <clears throat> you know, take him uh, less than an hour. Today, just to dig through the, the various... Um, versions of financial statements in themselves you've got your gap and then you know self-reported all these different kinds everything's adjusted nowadays that's right so 
You went from earnings to earnings before interest to taxes. Yeah. And yeah. I'm following my own rule on Sherman Says, but here we go. We're going to bring it back to the swing. <laughs> yeah. Things. Here we go. Sherman, pizza. Awesome. Duration. Uh, manage it. Leverage. Uh, or leverage. Oh, le- oh leverage. leverage. Yeah, yes. yeah yes. I thought we were getting Canadian with the leverage. Um, um, useful but dangerous. Hulk Hogan. He's antiquated. Eight oh. old school. You do know that Sam is a huge Hulk Hogan fan. All right. Well, now you do know. Okay. Technicals. Uh, important. Asset allocation. Critical. Hot sauce. Habanero. Glass. Don't break. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Mr. Cohen. Right. Thank you for joining us today on the Sherman Show. Again, that was Robert Cohen, Director of Global Developed Credit and a Portfolio Manager here at DoubleLine. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, DoubleLine Capital.